0: You're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, we have microcap expert Ian Castle. Ian has been investing in microcaps for over 20 years, and he's the co-founder of the popular site Microcap Club. He's the author of two amazing books on intelligent fanatics, a phrase coined by Charlie Munger, and he's now the CIO of Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management. In this episode, we discuss why microcaps get a bad rap, how a few of the greatest investors got their start in microcaps how to identify microcaps that could grow up to be macrocaps, the pros and cons of a highly concentrated portfolio, psychology around cheaply priced stocks, including macrocaps that do stock splits, Ian's strategy for finding profitable and sustainable microcap companies with great management, and a whole lot more. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Ian, and I know you'll get a lot of great insights out of this one. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the thoughtful Ian Castle.
0: you are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected.
1: Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And man, oh man, I'm so excited to have on the show, Ian Castle. Welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: I'm eager to get into today's discussion on microcap stocks because it's something we really haven't explored on this show. And I'm not talking small caps. We're talking microcaps today. And you are an expert on the subject. Some people would refer to microcap stocks as penny stocks, which has somewhat of a negative connotation to it. Could you please first define for the audience what exactly a micro cap stock is and why they're also frowned upon from time to time?
2: Sure, no, I'd be happy to um, you know micro cap stocks um, you're right. I mean, I think it's such an opportunity, but you know most people, like you said, frown upon them or broad brush the whole ecosystem as this uninvestable wasteland of small companies. But I define microcaps as public companies that have market capitalizations less than three hundred million, and I've been defining it that way for probably ten years, so just due to inflation, especially recently, I should probably increase that to sub five hundred million, but I think most people would say in general, sub 500 million market cap. And when you're sizing that up against the public equity universe, you're looking at around 24,000 stocks in North America, that's the US and Canada combined. And roughly 48% of those 24,000 would be defined as micro cap as having market caps sub 300 million. So it's a vast amount of the public universe. In fact, you know, I would say there's more micro caps than there are companies that trade on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ combined.
1: So what's interesting about that, You know, as an entrepreneur, I look at that and I say, if you were an entrepreneur and you started a business and you started growing that business, and then all of a sudden someone said, hey, guess what? Your business is worth $30 million. You would be so stoked on that. You'd be so excited. That'd be a dream come true. You'd be like, this is the most incredible thing ever. And yet in the public markets, no one cares. <laughs> like That is like the smallest of yes. small potatoes ever just to even qualify as a micro cap stock. So since no one cares about these stocks, the liquidity just isn't there, it would seem. And so that can create these really wide discrepancies in price and the bid-ask spreads, et cetera. Is the fact that they're getting such a negative connotation around the idea of people trying to get out of these stocks and couldn't and saw this bigger loss, and so it's become this narrative that hey, you'll experience more loss involved. Walk us through, I guess, what is creating the narrative there?
2: You know, it's a very good question. I mean, when you think about micro cap investing, we're investing in small emerging companies, and you know, I kind of put small emerging companies. If you're an investor, you kind of have three ways to invest in them. Whether it's venture capital on the technology side, those are private companies, obviously, whether it's just kind of more smaller private equity, you know, also private companies. And then there's the public way to do that, which is microcap. You know, ironically enough, when you look at those two other ways to invest, whether it's venture capital or private equity, you know, the common public or retail investor doesn't really have access or at least good access to those marketplaces. There's some ways you can do so in the venture capital community today. But let's just be honest. I mean, even the venture capital side—it's those top five venture capital firms that are getting the best deals, that are negotiating the best prices, that are doing the best deals. You know, quite honestly, you know, you have to know the right people, you have to be at those firms, you had to go to the right schools, you know, that type of thing. With public microcaps that are publicly traded, I mean, that opportunity set is open to everybody. Whether you have five hundred dollars in your brokerage account, you know, or five billion or five billion, those opportunities persist. The interesting thing about microcaps being public and illiquid is it's probably the only area in the small public or small company arena that really keeps the institutions out because they're so illiquid. It's much easier for an institution, you know, investing, you know, 500 million, a billion plus to invest in these venture capital companies or private equity companies because they can be in control of the deal. They can mark the price and they can buy the entire company, you know, in most cases. They really don't have. Want to you know, buy one percent of a thirty five million market cap company. It doesn't really serve a purpose. So there's this advantage to a small retail investor that's astute that knows how to read financial statements to find these really good companies that are unique, that are growing, that are profitable, that are small because the institutions are kept out of them. The institutions can only buy them once their companies get larger, their stocks become more liquid and then they can buy them. So it's one of the only areas I think in investing where the small retail investor has a distinct advantage because the institutions are almost kept out of the city gates. You know, you have this playground to yourself. And that's what attracted me to it You know, 20 years ago is somebody like me could get an advantage over other people. And I'm not the only one. I mean, Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, Joel Greenblatt, all these great investors, most of the great investors got started investing in microcaps because this was an area In their early years, when they're imagining small sums where they could get an advantage over others. And that same kind of structural advantage still persists today. And I think it might be, you know, why is this kind of space kind of broad brushed, kind of this sleazy ecosystem? I think it maybe is because they're marked to market every day. They are public. You see the amount of failures. You know, you see the stocks decline on a daily basis. And I would be one to say if the venture capital community had the same mark to market every day, you would see a similar type of chart pattern, you know, where you have those power laws, you know, that persist even down here in small equities where, you know, 20% of the companies are probably going to be nice winners and the other 80% are not going to be. And so I think it's unfair just because, you know, those great investors started here, you know, companies like Walmart, Amgen, Intuitive Surgical, Monster Energy, Netflix, even Berkshire Hathaway, when Warren Buffett took it over, was a micro cap company. You know, and I think historically, those companies would also be the best performing public companies ever. They started or came out of the microCap ecosystem, and even on an economic level, I think if you're, I, I think this was probably a little dated, maybe five or six years ago. But when I had a cap IQ subscription, I actually added together all the employees of the microcap universe. And it was like three or 4 million jobs, which is more people than Walmart employees. So it's a, a universe that also is impactful in the economy. And it's important that we support that. And so, you know, a big part of kind of my public outreach, whether it's on Twitter or through a microcap Club, is really just to remind people how important this ecosystem is. And it's legitimate, and it's been around for a long time, and there's sustainable advantages still exist today.
1: Right. But you just used the term sleazy with that ecosystem as like, that is just such an interesting word that I have to dig in on a little bit more. Is it sleazy because it's Prime for like pump and dump schemes. Do you find fraud more frequently in these stocks, or is there some other sort of negative risk that goes along with it?
2: Unfortunately, I think most folks get their first entree to microcaps through some newsletter they get in their mailbox or inbox that promotes, you know, a 10 page glossy newsletter on why company XYZ is the next Amazon. You know, and then if you looked at the disclaimer, you'll see that somebody paid $2 million for distribution of this newsletter. And I actually, tra- believe it or not, I actually tracked, I think I had a list of 42 that I received at my house. And 100% of the time, within two years, they literally went down 99%, you know, those companies. And so unfortunately, I think the public gets their first entree in the microcap investing from the very worst part of it. You know, those types of newsletters that, you know, produce like these companies that really have no chance and that are going to go down. And it's why, you know, when people talk about microcap investing with me or when I talk to them about it, you know, I always say, listen, there's when you look at the public company universe that are microcaps, around 16% of these companies are profitable. Focus on that 16%. You know, if you just focus on the profitable companies in microcap, you know, it gets rid of 95% of your issues.
1: Very interesting. And just more on that kind of idea of them being so small that the liquidity and the volume of trading could have such an impact. I'm kind of curious why we haven't seen, let's say, the Reddit community entering into the microcap space, or if they have, I'm not aware of it, but obviously even GameStop was slightly above that. Maybe they were in that 500 million range at the time, but do you see that happening at all in the microcap space where the retail raiders are coming in and making some sort of impact?
2: Not yet, but I could... I certainly kind of agree with you. It wouldn't be surprising to see them come downstream into micro cap because more and more of these companies are actually uplisting in the New York Stock Exchange. A lot of them here in the United States, I would say probably over fifty percent of microcaps trade on the OTC markets, you know. And so a lot of those Reddit crowd they won't participate in anything that's OTC markets, but they would if it's trade on the Nasdaq or New York Stock Exchange. So I think you know it wouldn't be surprising to see that activity pick up. We certainly see a little bit of it, but not to the extent that we saw in GameStop or AMC or things like that.
1: All right. Well, I love the idea of Buffett and Lynch and Greenblatt You know, all getting their start in this space. And it makes total sense that as they accumulated more capital, they just needed to put that capital to work in bigger companies, right? Now, Buffett has that high class problem nowadays of hardly being able to find a company big enough. So that's where he's gone. But I'm curious, how did their performance in micro caps compare to the larger caps they've been investing in later on?
2: When you look at the Buffett partnership, I I believe he started that in 1957. And when he started that partnership, I think it launched with around $100,000 in capital. And so $100,000 in 1957 dollars is about a million dollars today. So he, you know, Warren Buffett launching today would have launched his partnership with a million dollars. And that partnership ran until 1968. By the time the partnership ended. In 1968, I believe he had around 100 million in capital in those dollars, which is around 800 million today. So, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. He went from you know basically a million dollars equivalent today to 800 million over the course of 11 years, you know, in that fund. And in the middle of there, I believe it was 19. Uh, some, some Berkshire zealots are going to yell at me. I think it was 1965 that he kind of bought control of Berkshire. So during that partnership. Actually, brought control of Berkshire Hathaway, and Berkshire Hathaway, even on an inflation-adjusted basis, was a microcap even in today's dollars. But he started purchasing kind of large chunks of public companies and even a few private companies even in, in the mid 1960s. And so, his kind of entree in the microcap probably only lasted a few years because he was so successful. He quickly, you know, grew out of that ecosystem. When you look at his performance, kind of over those first five or six years. I mean, they were actually probably fairly equivalent to what he did over the next 10 years, which makes sense. I mean, when you think about it, if I'm the best varsity QB in my high school football team, you know, hopefully I excel and become the best QB in the college team and things like that. And So your performance can sustain at different levels and different market cap classes. And that's what the greats do. I mean, they're able to kind of continue on with their success, compounding those great rates as they go upstream and up market cap. So I think most of his microcap experience was the first five or six years. And I believe he compounded at 31% gross during his partnership years, 25% net, you know, which was probably on track with what he did over the next 10 years once he was kind of going upstream a little bit further. When you look at somebody like Peter Lynch, I think he launched his fund officially to the public in like the early 80s. And I think he had around a 22% average rate of return. So Probably somewhat similar, but a little bit better than what he did. Then when he was forced upstream, because he went from managing 100 million in the early 80s to about 16 billion by the time he left. You know, so he was obviously going upstream, but he also increased the amount of positions that he was in. I mean, he was in 1,200, 1,300 companies at a time by the time he was done, which is pretty amazing. when You think about that being in 16, you know, being an active investor and being in over a thousand names.
1: Incredible. Yeah, you know. Back in 1999 Buffett said that he could still achieve 50% annual returns if he was working with like 10 million or so. What strategies do you imagine he'd be implementing in that case? Would it simply be just concentrating heavily into these smaller companies, I think like you are, or are there like, you know, are we talking Greenblatt spin-offs and other kind of strategies thrown in there? What do you think the playbook would look like?
2: I think it would probably be, yes, concentrated. And again, he's one of the smartest people on the planet, so you have to watch when you talk about concentration because everybody glorifies it. But you know, there's also a it's also a dual-edged sword. But I think if Buffett was doing it today, it would be a combination of probably small micro small cap companies and probably doing something similar to what Brent B. Shore does, you know, where it's like acquiring private small companies for two or three times cash flow. It'd probably be some combination of that, but concentrating in that
1: approach. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, some small companies eventually grow up to be bigger companies. Netflix comes to mind. They ipo would a little over 300 million. What are some of the biggest success stories that you've followed from micro that have transitioned into macro? It's
2: a good question. I mean, there's some big, bald bracket names like Walmart when it went public in 1971 as an IPO. It was microcap. You know, intuitive Surgical it was kind of like Netflix where it was kind of a larger you know, microcap monster energy and one of those monster drawdowns that it had actually went down into microcap for a short period of time. Berkshire Hathaway, like I said, I believe Celgene as well, and there's a few other kind of life science companies that made you know huge runs over time. There's also a bunch of companies that a lot of people probably haven't heard of. That I mean, listen, you can 10x, 100x, you know, and still be a relatively small company too. You know, a company that like Expel, and the symbol is XPEL. You know, that was a company that was profiled uh, on Microcap Club by one of our members at 25 cents a share back in 2000. 12 or 2013 that hit $100 a share last year. And so they, that's the other thing kind of attracted me to kind of the smaller area of microcap is because you, know, you can find a 10 or 20 million dollar market cap company and if it 10x's it's still only a 100 or 200 million market cap company. But I think one one of the other interesting that parallels this conversation is also illiquid microcaps. Roger Ibotson, who's a Yale finance professor, also runs Zebra Capital. He actually has a few white papers on illiquidity as a factor and he did some work looking at all market cap classes, all liquidity profiles, going back to 1971. And in there, in one of his reports, I think the the most public or most recent one that's public is year ended 2017 or 18. But he he updates it annually. But he has it there a matrix, and it shows the best performing companies since 1971. And every year, you know, over since 1971, it's illiquid micro caps. Not liquid microcaps, not mildly liquid microcaps, but illiquid microcaps, you know, versus, you know, liquid large caps, illiquid large caps, mid caps, small caps. Since 1971, the best performing, you know, kind of quartile is illiquid microcaps.
1: Now, what do you attribute that to? Because when I hear that, I think of the real estate analogy where most people's wealth is from their home. And that's almost purely correlated to the fact that it's so illiquid, right? They don't want to, they can't day trade in and out of it. So they just default. To holding it for a long period of time. Is it something similar to that effect in this example?
2: My theory, this is just my theory, because I kind of experienced it during the, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, is the illiquid micro cap segment is normally the not institutionalized area. They're not in any ETF or anything like that. And so I think the main reason why that area of the market does the best is during drawdowns, like the crisis, or even what we went through with COVID. A lot of times those companies don't perform as bad because they're not up against institutional outflows. You know, people aren't saying risk off, you know, pulling capital out of funds that own them or the ETFs that own them. So that's, that's my theory.
1: What are your general thoughts on microcap ETFs? They're relatively new. And from what you just said, I'm coming up with this playbook of, okay, maybe we look at the holdings in those and then go elsewhere, right To the more <laughs> illiquid ones. But I'm curious, what are your general thoughts?
2: You know, I think those microcap ETFs are meant to scale. And microcap is not an area that's really necessarily meant to scale. It's really the ultimate stock pickers universe. You know, I think the worst way to own microcap is to own all of them. You know, and when you look at the companies that are in those ETFs, I mean, uh, the the iShares microcap index, which I think the symbol is IWC, I believe owns around 1500 microcaps, um, 78 or 80% of them are unprofitable. And, you know, it's really just a, a vehicle built to scale that hopefully catches some inflows, you know, or outflows. And historically, outside of last year, where it actually outperformed decently or did pretty well. It's been really miserable you know, over the course of time, You know, the long-term performance of that index. and I think that's something you'll see across the board in any microcap ETF that owns over 1,000 names, because microcap is really meant for stock picking.
1: Let's take a
3: quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting, from finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest stay. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com.
1: That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You know, the psychology around microcaps is super fascinating to me. For instance, the fact that a stock is a micro cap doesn't automatically mean it's a value play. But for some reason, there's this bias there. So case in point, when Tesla was ripping in 2020 to the point of being worth more than like the entire energy sector, they did a five to one split. They went from 2200 bucks to 446 The stock then doubled from there, right? And then Alphabet just announced a 20 for one stock split going from 2700 down to 138 and I would bet that something similar is going to happen, right? Just because people just look at the share price and say, "Oh, if that looks more affordable to me." What a what a deal! It went from twenty seven hundred to one thirty eight, you know. And they don't pay much attention to the market cap, which I think is a huge issue. I'm curious if you have any examples of a micro cap stock that you consider to become insanely overvalued.
2: It's a good question. I mean, overvalued is in the eye of the beholder, in some ways. I mean, I think what you do see is overvalued sometimes is just purely a story stock that has no revenues, has really nothing. Maybe it's promoting some IP that it has or a technology that it's yet to sell, You know that, that sells for 100 million, 200 million market cap. But then again, you could say the same thing. That's what the venture capital world is in the business of doing too. You know, Having companies that have no revenues traded a billion dollar market cap. So it's hard to think of any single company that comes to mind as overvalued I think what you said earlier about people not understanding the difference between market cap and stock price also occurs down here. You know, there's a lot of people that look at a 25 cent stock and think, well, that's cheaper than this $5 stock and not realize the market cap is actually bigger on the 25 cent stock than the $5 stock. You know, and that's why it's important to understand how to, you know, just look at simple things like the amount of shares outstanding and the fully diluted shares outstanding so you can get a feel for, you know, what the business is actually worth. So I, I certainly see a lot of that down down here in the microcap universe as well, but kind of the other thing to your point, I think we're in an incredible time period where the largest companies in the world, you know, are just—I mean, just the operating performance that they continue to put out is incredible. When you see the largest companies in the world still growing thirty percent a year, you know, with thirty percent operating margins, you know, there's a reason, you know, why they're being valued where they are. You know, it's just that operating performance is incredible.
1: Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you would want to focus in on profitable microcap stocks. I actually found that surprising because since they are more enterprising, then you think you would focus or weight profitability a little bit less, right? Because they're probably reinvesting a lot of capital, trying to grow and get bigger. Why are you saying that we should be more focused on profitability in the case of these younger stocks, we'll call them?
2: I think the newer you are to microcap investing and understanding financial statements, the more important it becomes to focus on the profitable segment. You know, strictly talking about the new investor, looking at microcap, you know, I think a lot of the the bigger issues you face are when you invest in unprofitable businesses. Because unlike the private equity and venture capital world, where they're flush with capital and resources, it's actually pretty hard for a microcap company to raise capital effectively. And I've seen it time and time again, you know, a thousand different times and a thousand different ways, you know, a small microcap company be ineffective in raising capital and the way they raised it completely destroy shareholder value. And so my biggest risk as a microcap investor is dilution, you know, and so I'm really trying to find those companies even today, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I do invest occasionally in some unprofitable companies, but it's really because I think they'll be inflecting on profitability within, you know, 24 months and they have the balance sheet to get there. But for the most part, our, your biggest risk is dilution as a microcap investor. So I think focusing on profitable companies that don't need to raise capital you know, is the best way to go.
1: Now, how often are you finding that with these microcap companies, the actual founder is still attached to the business? And if you do find that, is it any sort of advantage in your mind?
2: I'm personally attracted to founders for a lot of the same reasons other people are as well, You know, because they build the business. And it is more prominent in small microcap companies. The founder is running those businesses, which is probably another reason why I like microcap investing. It's, you know, it's not unusual that most of these companies, you know, there's 10, 20, 30% ownership by that founder. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why in 2016 I started working with Sean Iding's, and we wrote two books on intelligent fanaticism and, you know, basically what I believe is, you know, the smaller the company, the more important management becomes, the more important the CEO, the board, you know, the people that he that is around he or she becomes. And so we I wanted to drill down on that even more. So in 2016, me and my co-author, Sean Eddings, we wrote two books. I have one here called Intelligent Fanatics Project. And intelligent fanatics is a term that Charlie Munger used to describe an entrepreneur that builds something from scratch and build it into an organization that not only grew up to be a larger company, but became dominant in what they were doing in their geography and their industry, you know, globally even. And not only became dominant, they sustained that domination over decades. And I was always interested in what type of caliber of person or what quality or traits did the individuals that founded those companies, how did they create a business like that? Because a lot of these companies were in industries that were highly competitive. Maybe they're in commodity businesses. They didn't necessarily have a product that was just better than everybody else. We took some of the intelligent fanatics that Charlie Munger mentions in his speeches, and we kind of dug into their past and kind of rewrote their stories, their personal and professional stories, and tried to pull out some lessons from them. And it was a fun project for me because I really just wanted to fine-tune my qualitative lens for, for investing. And we had so much fun writing the first one, we wrote another one. And we covered, I think, eight intelligent fanatics in the first book, another nine in the second book. And then we actually brought in some interns from India to write one for India looking at entrepreneurs in India. So there's actually three books out by us. And so I I think for me, I'm attracted to founders. Um a big part of my time is trying to find those great leaders that have these intelligent fanatic attributes in them. That's why, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to management as part of my investment process.
1: I'd love to explore some of those attributes. What you just said kind of reminded me of a couple of things. My interview with Brent, be sure he mentioned that you know, you're looking for founders who are in it for the right reasons, and also they don't need the money anymore. You know? So I think about Berkshire Hathaway as well. All the uh, executives there could have retired many times over. They're all wealthy people, but yet they want to roll out of bed and go read 10 cues every day. So do you find something similar with the attributes you're exploring with these founders? What, are they just passionate? What, are, what are, Walk us through the attributes.
2: Yeah, I mean it's and it's no, you know they need to have all eight of these. You know I wish it was that easy. You know you can still fail, when they have these attributes. It's still, business still takes luck. You know, <laughs> but I would say the number one thing that that I picked up on that I really applied after doing the research was the the part about you know constantly putting great people around them. You know, I run into and Brent Bishore uses this term too, because and we connected to a lot of levels because he kind of does what I do, but in the private universe, but he uses the word hustle. Like he finds a lot of businesses that are a two or three person hustle and you can scale a hustle up to a two or five or $10 million business, but it'll always just be a hustle unless you put great people around you that will allow you to scale those, you know, scale the business. And you run into, into that a lot with microcaps as well. You can find quite a few companies that are good businesses even, you know, but they're actually limited. The ceiling is that founder because he will never let go enough to bring in great talent around him her and i don't want to invest in hustles you know i've done that before and you can even do that profitably but you know i want to invest in something that could be a 10 million revenue company go to 100 go to a billion and for that you need to have somebody that puts great people around them and so probably the biggest thing from the book that i've applied today is really doing a lot of analysis on the people that the ceo has around him or her in their operations and doing interviews with them are these people truly unique are they the best and what i don't want to see is a bunch of yes men or women you know, that are around the person. That's probably the number one thing I took, you know, from the book was that, because honestly, I probably put too much emphasis on studying the person themselves going into this research and going out of it. It actually was probably spending less time looking at the person and more about the people around them.
1: Yeah, interesting. The Jim Collins quote, a genius with a thousand followers kind of comes to mind. And when he did his research, he found that actually those leaders perform Worse off than the others who were more democratized. Very interesting. I want to explore your strategy a little bit further. As, as I understand it, you run a highly concentrated portfolio, or at least you used to. I love the quote that concentration creates wealth and diversification maintains wealth. Do you think there's truth in that? And as you've accumulated more capital and even launched a fund now, do you consider diversification more?
2: Yeah, I've always been concentrated. A little bit of my backstory in two minutes was, you know, I got introduced to microcaps when I invested in a few technology companies during the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. They quickly went up and then they quickly went down during when the bubble burst and those companies became (laughs) microcaps. So that's how I kind of got introduced to them. And I think when you lose money like I did quickly, it either motivates you or demotivates you. And for me, it just kind of motivated me to dig into this ecosystem, and I found this wild world of microcap investing. And back then, all the activity on small microcap companies was on public message boards like Raging Bull and Investors Hub and Yahoo Finance message boards. And you know the reason why all the activity is there is the investor base of most of these small companies is mainly retail, you know, and so that's where people would go to connect and share research and that type of thing. And so for the better part of ten years, I was on p- public message boards, and I met a few mentors on there, and that type of thing. And through some luck and some skill, I was able to become a full time private investor in 2008 during the depths of the of the crisis. And through all of that kind of investing through two ups and downs in the marketplace, it kind of zeroes you in on what strategy works well. And you know, for me and my strategy, I would say I, I, it kind of characterizes. I'm trying to find unique businesses that. There's not another one like it out there that's public, you know, and so the formula I like to use is kind of this combination of tailwind, scarcity, story and undiscovered. That's kind of the top level framework I, I use. And so for me, you know, tailwinds is important in a business because it's a lot easier to operate a business when there's a tailwind instead of a headwind. And I kind of compare it to the jet stream going from, you know, west to east uh, in the United States, you know, where the jetliners utilize that jet stream, you know, that takes like an hour or two off the the time that it takes to go, you know, from LA to New York. And it's kind of, that's how I would invest too. And so I'm trying to find these businesses that are in this tale when Josh Wolf of Lux Capital kind of, I believe, refers to it as an inevitable you know, arrow of progress, you know, kind of like how, you know, went from mainframe computers to personal computers to laptop computers to one you wear on you know, having your phone to one you have to rest, probably going to be implantable. You know, it's kind of undeniable progress. And so I'm trying to find kind of things that fit that, where it's a lot easier to invest when you're in a tailwind. The second thing is kind of, kind of scarcity. And scarcity is, a I think, one of the most unique parts of investing. It's one of the most powerful things that drives price. So scarcity is when demand outstrips supply, you know, and prices are forced to go higher. You know, I think the the most extreme examples of this is kind of when you see a uh, consumer demand hitting a single product category, like, you know, tickle me, or beanie baby bubble, that type of thing. I and mean, I'm not interested in finding the next, you know, superficial bubble. But I think the same thing happens to unique businesses that are public when there's not another one out there that's like it. And institutions want to... Get exposure to that area and that type of business, that's where you get these undervalued situations that can trade at overvalued prices. And I want to find undervalued companies that can get overvalued. I'm not a deep value investor. I don't want to find something that's undervalued that can get less undervalued. I want to get something that's undervalued that can get overvalued. And great businesses always become overvalued because there's a scarcity of them. And so I just want to find those types of situations you know, when they're small. And you know, when I first got started investing, I was mainly a story stock investor, believe it or not. You know, I wasn't really looking too much at fundamentals. And I would just try to find these things that there wasn't another company out there like it. There wasn't a tailwind and it had a great story, you know. And so I actually, one of the good examples of this was a company called K-Pasa, which was a Mexican social network like 10 years ago. And it was the only public social network that existed 10 years ago, it was before Facebook went public. And that stock went from a dollar ten simply because institutions needed exposure to this new thing called social networks. And it just propelled that stock to ridiculous valuations because it was only one of one. And so that's kind of the dynamic I'm going to find, just combining fundamentals with it, not just hype. Uh, and I want to find, you know, like I said, one with a good story. And you know, one that 100% of people will gravitate to, where it's easy to find the incremental buyer of the story because it's something you and I would believe in. And so you kind of, kind of combine that with undiscovered you know, which is quite honestly, I mean, most caps are undiscovered. So that's the easy one. That's kind of the last piece of it. And so just trying to find things that institutions don't own because not necessarily for the upside, but during those time periods of 2008, 2009, institutions can't sell what they don't own. And so a lot of times you're safer in situations like that as well during the bad times. And so that's kind of like a top level framework. When I first started investing, I was in 2 or 3 companies. And that's how I built my capital from I would say 2000 to 2007, 2008, literally in two or three companies. And you know, today as my capital has grown, and now I manage outside capital, it's still very concentrated. It's in, I would say, 8 to 10, 7 to 9, something like that, depending on the opportunity set. So I'm still very, very concentrated. And I look at the full ecosystem. It's not just the United States, Canada, but also the UK and Australia. There's dynamics in those other geographical locations that make it very interesting, you know, as a microcap investor. You know, where here in the US, quite honestly, there's less and less great opportunities going public small that have real businesses attached to them. But in Canada and Australia, those markets still have really interesting companies that are going public, you know, as a 25 million revenue company growing 30% a year that's profitable. You still see those. And so it's important, unlike 10 years ago, that a microcap investor, you know, is not kind of landlocked to their geographic location, you know, because that's what brokerages allow you to do. You can buy, you know, stocks in any market now.
1: And how do you sleep at night being that concentrated?
2: It's all I've ever done. So I was more concentrated before, but it's also like a big part of my strategy is just knowing these companies better than most other investors because that's what's going to save you from the losses. And that's what's going to keep you in these things to, to hold the gains because that's the, the key to investing. You want to sell your losers as quick as you can and hold your winners as long as you can.
1: I have some curiosities around you becoming a full-time independent investor in the trough of 2008, <laughs> because that's a very interesting time, obviously a very opportunistic time to get into it. Were you able to sidestep the decline there and you found yourself kind of flush with cash, ready to put it to work in that instance? Or you know, what kind of led you down that path? And then my second question would be, you know, how are you, how do you live off of that? How do you peel off cash from these positions just to cover overhead over time?
2: Good question. So probably by so what happened, a little bit of my chronological order here, was an undergrad from ninety-nine to two thousand three, went right into grad school from two thousand three to two thousand five. And I kind of fell in love with microcaps kind of in the middle of undergrad. And I went right into grad school because I got into an assistantship that paid for my tuition. And I kind of viewed that as a socially acceptable way to kind of waste time and hone this craft by going to grad to graduate school, to be honest with you. And so from so after that, you know, I still didn't have enough capital saved, but I was still learning. I had a few mentors. I was starting to visit companies pretty regularly by then. Um, I had it actually had a system down to where I would go visit a company like on a Friday and I could get back. By classes on Monday morning, and I had all figured out. So, you know, it, it was quite a fun time. Then I did some consulting from 2005 till around 2007. And then around 2007, I felt I had enough capital that I could just quit doing consulting and just live off my own balance sheet. But I really didn't feel comfortable doing so because I didn't feel like my strategy was tested through a bear market, not knowing that one was right around the corner. And when the bear market hit in 2008, I was not unscathed. I was in three companies, like I said, I was very concentrated. Two of them went down fifty-five to sixty-five percent, which is probably fairly normal from peak to trough. The other one went up two hundred eighty percent, and the one that went up two hundred eighty percent wasn't some you know triple full levered gold you know ETF. You know, it was actually just a fast-growing technology company that was profitable that institutions didn't own. And what you know that kind of really drilled into my psyche that you know even in a market like 2008 when you know things are really bad even during that time period institutions are still attracted to great businesses they don't own you know because that company went up 280% even while the market got flushed out and all those companies that were down 55 to 65% they were still high quality and all of them made up those losses in about 4 months in 2009 and so I decided to cut that cord. It wasn't like it was in the beginning of 2008, it was at the end of 2008 when I felt like, okay, a lot of those ones that were down 65% already troughed by that point in time. And I just felt like, okay, now I feel like I can do this. So that's when I decided to kind of like cut the cord of the consulting I was doing at that point in time and then just make a go of it being a full-time private investor. But I also think it's important to point out I was single. I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is the heart of Amish country. The cost of living here is very low. You know, I was not living in Manhattan in New York where I needed $25,000 a month to cover my expenses. You know, here at Lancaster, I had it down to where I just needed like, you know, $1,300 a month because I was single, no responsibilities, that type of thing. So it's a completely different situation than what other people might be going through. Or if I was going through it now, quite honestly, now that I'm married with two kids, when it comes to paying bills, it's not easy. It's the mental. It's mentally draining more so than the money it takes to pay bills is is selling stocks to pay bills. And it's it's one of the bogies that I used for when I wanted to go full time, quite honestly, was what is the amount of capital where I could sustain two 30% down years in a row and I wouldn't feel like I'd have to change my entire strategy or approach. You know, I wanted to be able to get punched in the face and still be able to move forward using the Rocky term. And so for me, that was kind of my bogey for when I wanted to pull the trigger and going full-time was when I knew I could sustain a couple punches and still not have to change what I'm doing.
1: Now, in that example, though, do you put any emphasis on microcaps that are producing dividends? Do you put any kind of weight on dividends at all for that reason? Or do you even find any, any microcaps that are producing dividends? I mean, is that a factor at all?
2: For me back then, no. No, there was, there was no dividends. I was strictly looking for high growth rate, profitable microcap companies. There are micro-cap companies to answer your second question. There are micro-cap companies that pay dividends. You have to watch out because some of them aren't sustainable because they're small, impressionable businesses.
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's
3: sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah. So I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it?
2: So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered, and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day, you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way.
3: What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
0: If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the joint chiropractic find out more today call 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com
3: as many of you know i love studying businesses and networking with business owners
1: back to the show. A lot of this micro strategy conversation is just bringing up a lot of VC analogies in my mind. And I'm kind of curious. I mean, so many companies, like you mentioned earlier, are choosing not to go public because they're getting eaten up by VC and even PE. And I, I think that has to do a lot with just the fact that the, those firms get a lot more control over the company. It's not even the capital, it's the terms that go along with it. Do you find that in the micro cab world? there's more activism in a similar fashion where you know people are coming in trying to take more and more control over the company just maybe because they can?
2: The part about activism, I believe 65 or 70% of all public activism happens at the microcap level. You know, and So I think that is a big part of... I think you do see a lot of that in microcap. And I know lots of activist fund managers, that's what they do. That's not how I invest. I'm not an activist when I get involved. I try to look for good situ- situations that can become great. You know, not bad situations that I can make a little bit less worse. I believe the last time I checked, there was worldwide, there's 63,000 public equities. And I think around 30,000 are micro caps as defined by US. But in a lot of times in those markets, too, micro cap is defined differently. Like for India, for example, you know, a 600 million USD market cap company in India is actually like a mid cap. You know, so you kind of have to watch how you define things. But, but yeah, I, I would say probably the rule of thumb is probably 40%, 45% of all public equities are micro caps and there's 8,000 in the U.S.
1: All right. So there's 8,000 microcap stocks just in the U.S. How are you sifting through a universe that large? You did found Microcap Club, where a lot of members are making recommendations, doing the analysis, creating conversations, dialogue. I imagine that's become a big resource for you. But even in the early days, I mean, how are you sifting through all of that and coming up with opportunities?
2: You know, in the early days, I wish I could tell you, oh, well, you just subscribed to MicroCap Club and, you know, it, it's all you ever need. No. You know, it's one tool in the tool set to find ideas, you know, so MicroCap Club would be one and just a quick thing on MicroCap Club. You know, that's a, that's a site I started in 2011 to be a tool for my personal investing. And I just wanted to get other smart investors in this niche of investing in a private forum, discuss what we liked and why. And so that's what that is today. It's a private forum. There's around 300 active members from around the world. You know, really just our mission is trying to find the next, you know, Walmart, Amgen, you know, name, you name it, those types of companies. And uh, really proud of the efforts of the club. It's not a guru service. It is not a, you know, sign up to this and we'll give you 10 stocks to go buy today. You know, that's not what we're about. You know, it's all about idea generation. You know, there's probably 10 to 20 new ideas of, you know, a month that are posted on that forum. And so we, we have a pretty good record of picking winners, I think since 2011. So we hit our 10 year mark earlier this last year, I think we're up to 241 companies that were profiled by our members have doubled or more since they were profiled. And that's not some high watermark or high tick. That's actually from where they were profiled to where they closed last month. And that's a pretty cool metric because there's been about 800 companies that members have profiled since over the last 10 years, 240 of them have doubled or more, which is pretty cool. So, but anyway, to answer your other questions, so that's one way. The other way is just simply, you know, networking with other investors, um, which I've been doing since you know the last twenty years. Another great way, but a lot of people don't do it, is just brute force A to Z. You know, going through all public companies. And it sounds tedious, but that's what it takes. That's what I did. You know, originally, you know, back in the early two thousands. That's what I did last year in the UK. I literally went through eleven hundred companies on the London A exchange, A to Z that way you're not missing anything. And a lot of times that's your edge as an investor is doing the work, going through a mountain of uninvestable ideas, trying to find that great one. Like that's your edge. It's because your willingness to do that when other people are.
1: It's like Buffett yes. with his Moody's book, you know, scrolling exactly. through. So in that case, I mean, why not use a screener nowadays, you know, to filter through? It's just I'm sure you have certain metrics that you like to find in stocks. Why not use a screener?
2: I do use some screening, but not in the traditional sense. And what I mean by the traditional sense is I don't do a screen for, let's look at every company under 300 million market cap that has over 30 million revenues, that's growing 30% per year, that has over 65% gross margins, that has insider ownership over 15%. You can go down through that list and you're going to be left with 100 companies. you know, And that's the same 100 companies everybody else is looking at. I would rather do a screen that is a screen for insider buys or rights offerings, which is another, what's a fancy word for you know, insiders putting more money into their company, because that usually is alerting you towards a transformation in a business. And so those are the types of screens that I like to use because it's triggering me to something happening in that business. And so those are the types of screens that I do more readily than just as fundamental screens.
1: Now, once you've done a screen like that, do you find that you then default to some, uh, some circle of competence? that you'd like to stay within are there any industries that you say nope that one's not for me
2: I'm fairly a generalist I would say I don't invest in utilities but I don't think there is a utility that's on my micro- No, that's not true I think there are a couple but no I mean pretty much any industry is is open to what I'm looking for and really my you know the way I invest is different than other people you know, it's just like in large cap, you'll find value investors, growth investors, people that focus on life science companies, people that focus on mining companies, you know, people that focus on momentum or whatever, you can find those same types of investors just focusing on the smaller segment. And so the way I invest is different from somebody else. So kind of my four hurdles for investment are, you know, number one, is this a business that can grow through a recession? It's more of a qualitative but type of hurdle. And when you put just that type of framework around the ecosystem, you know that gets rid of ninety five to ninety eight percent of the companies that are publicly traded. Number two, do they have a balance sheet that can weather a storm, and where they can also act with occasional boldness, like during the COVID trough or the financial crisis when their competitors are going under? Can they take advantage of that situation? You know, number three. Is that management team showing signs of intelligent fanaticism? Are they showing those attributes that we're that we're looking for? And number four, it's on valuation. You know, is this a business that I think can fundamentally be worth double where it's at today in three years? Kind of supporting a 25% cater, you know, over the long term. So those are kind of those four filters, you know, that I kind of look at every business through. But those aren't gonna be the same ones that other people will, you know, and that's fine. You know, there's a lot of a lot of ways to win in investing, as you know.
1: Yeah. Surviving through those downturns is, is super interesting. You mentioned that sometimes micro cap stocks are less affected because the institutional money isn't in them to begin with. So therefore, they're not selling out. And this analog came to mind for me in real estate where when I was looking at homes during 2008, the average home price went down 50% unless you lived in Los Angeles where I live and it was only 25%. <laughs> I found that very interesting. That was for homes over a million, but you get the point. So Is there something similar here or some metric where in downturns, microcaps historically have only gone down X percent versus Y percent in other size caps?
2: What I would be interested to know is based on kind of those criteria I outlined, how would they perform through a downtrend? You know, and I haven't done that work as a whole. I don't have the resource to be able to pull that off.
0: You can pull off what
2: like the IWC, the ETF, does through a you know, it's going to do worse than everything else. You know, so it's you can kind of pull up the general data, but I haven't. But I'd be interested to know, you know, how kind of types of situations that I look for have done. I don't know. You know, unfortunately, you know, I had my instance through two thousand eight, two thousand nine. You know, but that's a you know sample size of one.
1: I talk a lot about Buffett because he's my my main reference. But going back to that visual of him scrolling through the moody's book i mean it's it's basically said that he was essentially doing the calculations in his head as he's going through that book and even nowadays he's got that too hard box on his desk you know for for to discard things that are out of his circle of competence if you will i'm curious to know how much of your strategy is quantitative versus qualitative so once you are going through even a to z like you mentioned on these stocks are you modeling things out you're visiting these management teams. So I imagine there's a lot of qualitative that goes into it. What's the balance look like between quantitative and qualitative in, in your strategy?
2: It's probably 50-50. You know, when it comes to modeling and pulling out Excel, you know, I, I'm probably a big fan of the Peter Lynch, you know, crayon of napkin type of thing. You know, that that's what I'm doing, obviously a little bit more detailed than that. But I would say it's a it's probably an equal mix of quantitative and qualitative. I mean, one of the things I did early on, depending we all go through this maturation process as an investor, and when we start out as investors, we're probably overly focused on fundamentals and financials. That's why everybody starts out as a deep value investor because it's all they know. You know, it's easy to just screen for that or look at, you know, financial statements. You know, and, and then you kind of move from from that to maybe looking at management teams, and then you get overemphasize that area, thinking that oh, right, I found the next Henry Singleton; he knows how to allocate capital, and you kind of. Overly emphasize that area and then you overemphasize, you know, a certain industry. And so I find like the maturation process of investors just all about, you know, educating yourself in a new area. You end up overemphasizing this area too much. You end up stepping back, realizing that it's all a piece of a massive puzzle and everything should be emphasized equally. You know, and I've done that so many times throughout my career where I overemphasize the importance of you know, these little nitty gritty details on, on a leader or, you know, what he did. Well, you know, he's paid $10,000 a year too much or something like that. You know, he's not investable, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, we have to step back and, and see it as a whole picture. And so today I would say it's much more equal because of 20 years after doing this. And, you know, my investment strategy today is made up of all those past experiences. You know, I, I started as a story stock investor. And so story is still important to my strategy today. I want to find these businesses. that have a great story. I want to find businesses that have a great leader. I want to find businesses that are unique, where it's one of one, where it's not another, it's not the thousandth company marketing a product a little bit differently, hoping to gain share. And I want to find businesses that are scarce, where there's not another one or two, hopefully there's only one or two other public ways to play in that business or trend or industry.
1: That idea of scarcity is interesting to me because it kind of flies in the face of something we've discussed on the show before when it comes to smaller companies which is optionality and maybe i'm misperceiving this but the way you described it sounds like you're looking for things that almost have a monopolistic you know application or product instead of having a product or service that is highly optional and they might be able to branch off and do lots of different things even in different industries perhaps am i getting that right or is optionality part of the strategy in, in some other way
2: absolutely part of it you know the optionality Scarcity—it's—it's it's mainly just trying to find those very unique, one-of-a-kind businesses or situations that's out there. That's mainly what I mean by scarce. And even scarcity down to the share structure. You know, going—I found that like the best leaders, you know, treat their shares like gold. They don't dilute a lot. You know, and so I love your know, scarcity even goes down to the illiquid stocks. Well, there's a scarcity of shares. So every incremental buyer, if they want to buy that stock, the stock's going to go up because there's not enough shares at this price. You know, and so scarcity kind of it goes up you know, falls under the full gamut of a quality business, even down to the share structure of the company, the leader, you know, and everything. But I certainly look for optionality. I love it when there's, you know, two or three ways to win.
1: You know, when Buffett and Lynch and these guys were running highly concentrated microcap type of portfolios, there was actually high turnover. A lot of people think of them as the buy and hold forever types, but there was actually some high turnover and the performance didn't seem to suffer from it. So is that something you find with your own portfolio as well where the turnover might be highly higher than normal maybe it's just less of a buy and hold strategy per se but the performance isn't hindered in the same way.
2: Yeah, I mean I I think in today's day and age there's been sort of this overglorification of just buy and hold investing, you know, even by active managers and you know, I think it's I think it's partly because of the rise of private equity and venture capital, you know, everyone's trying to invest in public markets with the same kind of permanent capital kind of mantra. But, and I think also, I think when it it comes to active investing and stock picking, you know, I think it sounds more cerebral and thoughtful when you appear to do all the work up front, and then you're just going to park it and sit it and forget it. It makes it look like you did just the mountain of work and you're so convicted in this name. You know, when you look at somebody like Peter Lynch, you know, he had I think 2 or 300% turnover per year. Warren Buffett had 50 to 100% turnover per per year for the first 30 years of his career. Even when you see him updating his public holdings, you know, he's not sitting there. You know there's changes being made, you know, constantly. And especially as a microcap investor, we're investing in small, you know, emerging companies. You know, in many ways we're trying to find the next Tom Brady when he's playing in high school. You know, And so it's similar as like an NFL scout trying to to scout talent, whether from a college team or a college scout trying to scout talent from a high school team. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, you know, I'm trying to find the next small cap company in micro cap land. And I know I'm not going to be right all the time. And so there's always going to be this turnover to where, you know, I'll do all as much due diligence as I can. It has all those attributes I like to see. I'm going to put it in the portfolio and I still know I'm going to be wrong 30 or 40% of the time. And, you know, like I said before, the key to success in this business is selling those winners, you know, as soon as you can and holding those winners as long as you can. And so that, that's how I view turnover. And so because of these are small emerging companies and they're impressionable businesses, I kind of compare microcap investing to watching your three-year-old kid. You know, you're not going to let your three-year-old in your living room or let, let them in your house alone for very long or else they'll burn your house down. You know, that's the same thing with microcaps. You have to stay on top of these companies. Because they, you know, things can change in an instant. You know, it's your uh, initial due diligence that gets you into them, but it's that continuous maintenance due diligence, keeping the pulse of that company that is going to save you a lot of pain and losses and also keep you in them. So turnover, I think, is always going to be a part of a successful micro cap strategy. I think if you coffee can microcaps, you'll go broke.
1: Very interesting. Last question for you, now that you are running a fund after being independent for so long, I'm curious what kind of drove that decision and led you to take on other people's money at this point?
2: Sure. So I'm 41 now. And so in 20 or, yeah, I guess it would have been three, three four years ago, you know, I'm sitting here in the corner of my house, which is where I'm at now. And you know, I could keep doing this for another 10 or 20 or 30 years, but you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. And, you know, I was talked to my wife about it and we prayed about it. And we're like, you know, it's all there is, you know, I continue to do this, but I also run into people all the time that say, Hey, you know, I love what you do. I'd love to, to give you some capital. And I always said no, because I always say no. And then something about, oh, maybe it's a midlife crisis. I just said, you know what, maybe I can do this. And so I started thinking about it and put the pieces together for it and decided to kind of raise a small amount of capital and start matching some outside capital. That's what I started doing in 2018. And now we match capital for about 60 families that kind of want some exposure kind of to the way that I invest in microcap companies. And it's been great. You know, I kind of did the opposite of what other people do it, where they start a fund, you know, they build up a huge ownership in the GP, and then they just give all their investors money back and just manage their own family office. So I kind of did it differently, where I just kind of started from nothing, you know, became a full-time private investor, and now managing a fund, you know, (laughs) kind of did the opposite. It's been great. And I'm glad it turned out this way because, you know, one of the other advantages of MicroCap Club for me is the talent that is on there. You know, if Buffett, if Lynch, if all these folks started in MicroCaps, it's not too far-fetched to think the next great investor is a MicroCap investor today. And that MicroCap Club community has some of the best investors on the planet. Some of them are 17, 18, 19-year-olds that spend 28 hours a day searching for great companies. And so being able to leverage that talent, creating those networks, you know, I pulled it, I have a full-time analyst with me now who's the youngest member to ever get into MicroCap Club at the age of 15. You know, just being able to utilize that talent, you know, it's just huge, you know. And so our mandate as a fund, you know, we were first kind of North America and now we're Australia and the UK. You know, I don't want to find the best small public companies in North America. I want to find the best small companies in the world, you know, and that's the goal here. And obviously we're concentrating in eight to 10 holdings. And so our hurdle rates are high. But, um, but it's been a lot of fun you know and, and it's been a great challenge and it's not without its difficulties but it's been a blessing
1: yeah I mean one of my other questions on that was just why not structure it as an ETF but even ETFs I think you have to hold a minimum of 20 something holding so probably just not concentrated enough is that correct
2: it is it, it's too difficult and what I do is not scalable you know you know we we run a small amount of capital and I'm not saying that I don't want to put limitations on myself, you know, because you know I think if we are successful, we will look more small cap than micro cap in five years. You know, what what I do is really not scalable. It can't just take on an influx of a hundred million dollars tomorrow.
1: Well, Ian, this was so much fun. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. This is a great first time to have you on the show. I'd love to have you back more. So before I let you go, I do want to give you the opportunity to hand off to the audience where they can find you. I know you're on Twitter and some other places, Microcap Club, et cetera. Just give a handoff where people who uh, might be interested to follow along.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is my name, Ian Castle. And you can find me on microcapclub.com. My capital management website is www.if.capital. And so you can find me in all three of those locations. And you know, I appreciate sharing my journey a little bit with you and hope I'm back on. I really enjoyed it.
1: All right, everybody, that's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, please don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Definitely reach out to us. You can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out all the resources we have for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. And with that, we'll see you again next time.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network